It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We're the publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. Behind the headlines here on WLIWFM, if you're just joining us for the first time, we bring together award-winning community journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And good panel once again. Uh, we have Grant Barpin from the, he's a content director at the uh, Times Review Media Group. Hey, Grant. Hey, good to be here. Uh, Jamie Buffalino, who's staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. And Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. So, Jamie, let's start with with the conversation about uh, hospitals this week. The state's mandate uh, that all hospital staff have to be vaccinated went into effect on Monday. And uh, the local hospitals, I want to talk about both hospitals, but let's start with Southampton Hospital. They actually ended up uh, suspending 16 unvaccinated staff members. uh, And as a result, the atrium uh, in Hampton Bays, which offers some services uh, had to stop taking appointments for radiology uh, because of a short short staff there. But otherwise, I believe the hospital said 98% of employees are vaccinated and 100% of doctors. So it, it had less of an effect than it may have had in some areas of the country. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is a fine balance that the hospitals are trying to uh, achieve here, which is that, you know, to comply with the state mandate, but also to assure people that they're providing the same level of care that they have in the past. And, um, you know, it's been tough a little bit, but they haven't been as affected as they could have. And I think the mandate has encouraged more people. The governor said this week that uh, vaccination rates have been up among healthcare workers, um, but it's still a bit of a dicey situation if some outpatient uh, services are not being performed and, you know, staff are having, the hospitals are have to juggle staff to make sure that they're covered in different areas just to make up for the people that aren't vaccinated. Seems like it's a little bit of an inconvenience right now, more than a crisis at the hospital. I think in some areas of the country, uh, there are hospitals that are really, um, uh, you know, if, if, when they've had mandates go into effect, uh, the, the risk there is that they the hospitals are really short staffed. But that really hasn't been the case with Southampton. That's Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. Yeah, so far that hasn't been the case. Yeah, that's a note. Denise, up in um, Peconic Bay Medical Center, um, they, they similarly had some impact, but not a, an enormous impact, correct? That's that's what they say, yes. Um, we didn't get, uh, you know, despite efforts to the contrary, we didn't get hard numbers on um, who and like what kinds of employees, but we're, we're told that the 2% of their staff hospital-wide um, did not comply with the mandate or just about 2%. And um, that most of those people were not, well, the doctors are like 100%, just as Jamie said, and um, the nursing's, you know, very high percentage. Um, and most of the people that did not comply were not doctors or nurses. Um, so, I mean, I guess you're looking at maybe patient care technicians, aides, um, and other, as this was a, you know, an organization-wide mandate. Um, so it could be, you know, people in clerical positions. Um, and it's also organization-wide, uh, you know, so all of the practices, uh, the doctor's practices and the back office workers, uh, at the doctor's practices, people that do billing and things like that applies to everybody. So they said that they were not seeing any disruption in care whatsoever uh, at Peconic Bay. But, you know, again, it'd be better to get hard numbers. I mean, and this is behind the headlines. And I know, Joe, you had sent around a, an, an, um, an article um, kind of criticizing some media organizations, you know, around the country for blasting these headlines about workers, you know, 
medical workers who had been fired or, or suspended or whatever. And the numbers really weren't that high. And it was critical of some media organizations for blasting out these headlines, you know, a hundred, a hundred workers, you know, suspended from, you know, from medical facility when, when that number was one or 2% of, of the workers and kind of trying to, to make this more of a story about that than, than about a, a story about compliance. And I mean, it was a mandate, but, but in the end there was, you know, a, a high compliance and it sounds like that was the case. And, in, in Southampton and, and, and Riverhead, um, although it did take the mandate to, to get there. And, and I don't want to, you know, be a, be a PR arm for, you know, for the hospitals either, but it, but it sounds like, um, sounds like the mandate kind of worked at least out here. Right. I was going to say, Grant, is that the, the takeaway, Grant, that the, the mandate works? I mean, I, you know, in this case, at least, uh, it really pushed a lot of people off the fence. And I think some people who were vaccine hesitant, when push came to shove, most people were willing to get the vaccine when it became a mandate for them to keep their jobs. Imagine that a science based profession and most people following the science. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, um, you know I, I mean, I think, yeah, of, uh, of course. I mean, I, I would expect that. I mean, I know there was like some protests out here that we intentionally didn't cover. We were just like, I don't know, at this point, like, what are these people complaining about? I mean, you have to, you're in a science-based profession, you're in a healthcare profession, and you have to do what's best for your health and the health of the people that are treating you. And so I think most people are going to follow along with that. It would be kind of like if at newspapers, if we were like, well, we're going to follow the truth most of the time, you know, and all these elements of our job, but in this aspect of the job, we're just going to kind of, kind of fake what the news is. And, you know, all due respect to the good people at dance papers, you know, there's room for satire every now and then. But um, uh, I think for most newspapers, if we didn't follow the truth most of the time, we would probably have to leave our jobs. Right. So I yeah. think that's kind of what happened there. Deservedly so, right? I mean, uh, right. I mean, I, I don't really care. That's more people. I mean, there's other people who are coming up through colleges right now looking for jobs that are willing to follow what they're required to do to do to get those jobs. I mean, I don't, this idea that we're just like entitled to these jobs. I don't, I don't really know where that comes from. I'm or the idea you- that it's my body, my choice. Like I, you know, they throw that around all the time. And I, I mean, in a public health emergency, a public health crisis like this, that doesn't work. Like it's your actions are not just affecting you or your right. own family. Exactly. You know, Jamie, so, do you think, sorry, Joe. do you, th- do you think it's a, a tipping point? I'm curious, you know, at, at some point, the, you know, it feels like the, the vaccine hesitant folks out there um, had a fairly sizable voice in the community and they still do at the school level and, and they're making a lot of noise. But when you have something like this happen where we had a mandate and a lot of the, the opposition sort of crumbled when it came, when push came to shove, um, is there sort of a tipping point where, the conversation starts to swing because now it really does become a fringe position. If you're, if you're opposing vaccinations, whether we're talking about at the hospitals or at the schools or anywhere else. Well, I think that the numbers have uh, speak for themselves. You know, I think uh, like Bill was saying that uh, predominantly people are vaccinated in these professions Um but, you know, there is always, because of social media, there is always going to be a strong uh, contingent of people that who are loud and uh, making their point that, you know, whether it's valid or not, that, you know, like I was checking the my story about the vaccine, uh, the people who were uh, suspended was posted on um, Instagram and I was reading the comments and I was surprised at how many people took the side of the five, the suspended workers. You know, everyone was saying, you know, last year they were heroes and now they're being, you know, dismissed because, they, you know, this is their choice. So I don't know that it's ever going to fully go away, but ultimately, I think the numbers are going to speak for themselves. And the, the, the main point of it is, is that people get vaccinated. I, I'm going to coin a phrase. I think it's I, I would call it the bullhorn effect that let's call it Joe Shaw's bull, bullhorn effect. I want to I want to trademark that. I oh, think social horn. media. Horn, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think social media has given 
a, a larger voice to a small group of people that spends a lot of time on social media and, and speaking out in a stronger way. And so it has sort of a bullhorn effect. It makes it seem like a larger uh, movement than it actually is. And I think that's, a, that's, that's all based on the, uh, the prevalence of social media yeah. these days. And I think it's I agree, with, I, I agree with you, Joe, but you know, the vaccination rate is still hovering just a little over 60%, right? So, I mean, it's not, it's not like you're talking about 10% of the population that, that's vaccine hesitant. I, I don't like that term because I mean, they're, you know, they're vaccine deniers or whatever, but, but there's still a pretty large number of people who don't want to get the vaccine. I will say, though, I think it's been pointed out by some folks that that one of the reasons some people are hesitant to get the vaccine is because they're concerned about the side effects and they don't have the ability to take time off from work to deal with even a day or two of illness. Now, maybe now that the summer is over and, and it, you know, the, the press that happens every summer in every industry on the East End uh, probably makes that more difficult. I'll be curious to see if we see a little bit of a change um, in that, because uh, I mean, I believe we've all been vaccinated. We can all, I, I, I don't think I, I didn't have, you know, I had a sore arm for a couple of days, but some people really do have a reaction um, to, to the vaccine. So I think there are some legitimate concerns uh, among a small group, but I think there, this really has become politicized, you know? Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. I don't yeah. know if, uh, I, I don't know, uh, at a certain point, we're going to, you know, the numbers have started to level off and even started to go down a little bit um, in New York state. Correct. I, I think, I think we're seeing some improvement. Yeah. A you little know, less so in Suffolk, but yeah. Yeah. We were looking at the, the school numbers and uh, you know, on the, on the North Fork, the school numbers are pretty good. Um, you know, and you could see kind of, if you look at it, there's a couple areas like um, Smithtown and Lindenhurst that have really high numbers. If you look uh, across Suffolk County, but on the East end, things are good. And you know, those, Kids are wearing masks. I think in most districts, it's it's required. Right, it's it's required in all districts. Yeah, all uh, after uh, the, with the new governor. So you know, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that shows that that's working. Getting the vaccine is working. I mean, of course, we hear about like breakthrough cases and all these kind of horror stories, and that gets really amplified. To your point about about the bullhorn, because it's like with anything that we cover, it becomes newsworthy because it's unique and interesting, but then sometimes those things get overplayed. I don't know anybody personally that's had a breakthrough case and gotten really sick or, or, or died, you know, but I, I know of people who before there was a vaccine got really sick and died. So, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, I mean, but how do you, in the media, how do we really properly shine the light on those non-story stories. Does that make yeah. any sense? You know? It does. And, <laughs> you know, I, I read an article recently that said the goal of, of this vaccination campaign isn't to, to wipe out all cases of the disease. You can't, that's just, you know, the, the ability to do that is it's very difficult to do that. It's to make the disease manageable and to keep people from dying. And, and it's succeeding wildly in, in, in doing that. So um, the more shots we get into arms, the, the more effective it'll be. That's for sure. Uh, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton from the Express News Group. And our panelists today, Grant Parpin from the Times Review Media Group, Jamie Buffalino from the East Hampton Star and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Grant, I want to take a little time to talk about a project you're doing. It's called Suburban Smuggler, which, by the way, uh, would be like a great Eagles song title. <laughs> That's off of Hotel California. I yeah, think. I think is it one of the Eagles has a song like Smuggler's Blues? Yes. Yeah, it fits perfectly with that. Um, but you, you're doing um, we actually did. Uh, it's, it's nice when we can highlight our fellow journalists. Uh, we did a story in the press this week uh, and the Express about your podcast. Uh, you went through the Stony Brook Southampton program. Before we talk about the podcast, talk a little bit about the program uh, at Stony Brook Southampton, it's it's really doing some some great work and getting some folks set up in podcasts. Right, they they do a terrific job over there. Yeah, it's 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 really great. Um, I, you know, I was really excited to do it. I felt like for me, I had already been podcasting. I mean, we even Denise, when when you were working with us at Times Review, 
when I first started 15 years ago, I remember we were doing podcasts pretty early on and we've always kind of wow. dabbled in it and it's hard. It's always been something we kind of did on the side, but for me personally, I, I enjoy doing it. Like I'm not, you know, I found that I'm not somebody who is a particularly visually creative person, like when it comes to editing video and things like that. But when it comes to editing sound, I feel like I have a kind of a, a natural ear for it. So I really just have enjoyed dabbling in, in it. And this you know, being a storyteller, a journalist, the idea of going to through this kind of program where I could kind of, you know, really expand my knowledge of how to do it and how to do it well and be around other people who are interested in it. And the program, I was actually surprised that there wasn't even that many journalists. There was a couple of us with a journalism background, but there were people who kind of came from all different types of backgrounds professionally. Some people were interested in sound, some who were more from like the theater world who wanted to create a podcast. Uh, people in public relations. So, you know, it's really uh, all sorts of people, different, um, you know, racial and ethnic backgrounds, people from other countries, people from other parts of this country. And we did a remote during COVID last year. So really anybody could join us from anywhere. We had somebody from Alaska. We had somebody from mm. Nigeria. We had a it's, woman. It's very democratizing. Between New York and Paris. So yeah, uh, it's democratizing. Know. It gives the voice, it gives more voices. Uh, it gives you a chance to, to, to speak out in your own voice in, in a way that that's uh, really powerful. Yeah. And then, you know, you're working with like Cassie, Kathy Russo, who is a, uh, she produces uh, Hillary Clinton's podcast and Alec Baldwin's podcast. And, you know, somebody like uh, Tony Deck, who's really like the, the lecturer in the program and an East End guy who's just super knowledgeable in radio and, uh, and, and you know, audio production. And I, I wonder like if they're learning keep, from people keep... who are really high up in the profession. And they brought in all these Ira Glass came to speak to us one week. Wow. We all, they're like on the spot, they're like, Grant, why don't you pitch Ira your podcast? You know, I did job of I don't I wish he could have come towards the end of the semester. He was like looking at me like I had two heads. But uh, you know, it was uh it was really just a great experience. It's for someone like me, what I was really looking to get at it the most, besides like sharpening my skills, is I'm not a great um self-promoter. I think like as journalists, we're all about telling other people's stories and sometimes we don't tell our own stories that well. And so, you know, for me to be able to kind of like be forced to have to like pitch and network uh, and that sort of like business skill side of things, uh, I learned so much from that. I, I wonder if they're going to keep doing it as a as a virtual program, it seems like there were so many advantage to, advantages to that. Like you said, you get people from, yeah. from all over the world part, you know, participating in, in the program and, and the lectures and stuff. And I think, you know, one of, one of the, one of the advantages that we saw from, from COVID was the ability to just do a lot of things virtually. And um, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think we lost too much for me in virtual. I do think there could have been a little more like hands-on instruction if we were there. I know this year they're offering it both ways and it's oh. actually, they're incentivizing doing it virtually by offering it a reduced cost. So you have people coming again from other countries Annette had in her story, somebody from England, somebody from Australia. Uh, but then if you want to be in person and they have campuses in Manhattan as well as Southampton, you can come in and, um, and get more of that hands-on instruction and you know, they have equipment that we could use. I mean, you know, I have stuff that I had purchased myself. I have stuff from my company, but then also you know, I use like boom poles and things like that from them. So I was able to go out to the campus and grab that stuff and bring it out on the road with me to get the best possible sound when I was out there. I have to say you guys were ahead of the curve at the times review media group. Uh, as you said, uh, you've been doing um, audio stuff for years now, and it, it is such a, an important arrow to add to the quiver uh, when you're trying to tell stories as journalists. So uh, it's great. So speaking of which, so let's talk about suburban smuggler a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what this podcast is about. Yeah. Well, it's about Bonky Lamort, uh, Bill Lamort, who it's this kind of, it's almost like this legend here that is told on the North Fork of a guy who he owned a bunch of key food grocery stores actually on the South Fork as well. He owned the, what is now Kutchog King Cullen. It was key food in Kutchog and he owned the one in Hampton Bays uh, as well as in Mauritius. And he had, he had five stores total across Suffolk County. And he was this well-known guy, you know, really really active in donating to 
school causes and police causes and really just known as this gregarious, generous guy in town. He was kind of this man of mystery, you know, handsome, affable guy, had a, a lot of means. He brought a kind of swagger to the North Fork that I think was unique at the time. This is in the late 70s and early 80s. And it turns out a few years after he moved away from the North Fork, he was arrested for smuggling in marijuana as part of this broad conspiracy that dated back to 1970. And he brought in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of marijuana and hashish into America from almost every continent. Um, And he was kind of painted as the, the leader of this large network that was bringing in these drugs. And a lot of it was smuggled in. Actually, what they would do is he would offload by uh, the ruins out um, uh, uh, by Gardner's Island there that, um, you know, the old uh, uh, the the ruins that are now, I guess, like sinking away into the water. But there was this there was kind of this landmark where boats could meet and he would offload. And he kind of took the fall and said he was the the sole person bringing in these drugs. And but, you know, there's a sort of what I'm kind of exploring in the podcast is was there a larger network of people helping them? You know, I've heard tales from fishermen would go out there and help them. And, um, you know, it's kind of this, uh, this story that's always been, always been told in town, but not really the broader picture. You kind of get the, uh, yeah, you kind you kind of just get the highlights, but the full picture has never really come into, uh, into play. And, you know, where did these, where did all this pot end up? And then also exploring the idea that like, was it really that big a deal what he was doing in some extents with how much like our attitudes change towards marijuana? I mean, this is a guy who was sentenced to, 50 years and died in prison. Um, But, you know, was, did you find it? Did you, did you find people were willing to talk about this? Did you have any trouble getting people to talk about it? Yeah. It's been uh, a little bit of both. You know, there are definitely people who have really avoided me. There's people who I've talked to on background and had conversations with, and I've I've been working on this really since before I started the program, I've been working on this since 2017. Uh, So there's been people over the years who I've talked to on background, but, you know, I do, there are people who were willing to talk, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people in the first episode, you hear a lot of people and it hasn't come out yet. We're putting it out this winter, but um, a lot of the people who were, were willing to talk were his friends because they feel like, you know, he was this, he really was a great, like generous guy. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are sympathetic to him, you know, and uh, th- those people really, I think wanted, wanted to talk more than, a lot of the people who were like helping him smuggle, who ended up you know, testifying against him and sending him away. And I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of shame in that for a lot of people. Hmm. And what it's I'm hoping to do is when it starts to come out, as more episodes come out, that people, you know, once they hear it and they trust that it's a, a worthy project, that they're going to want to want to talk. So it'll keep you, and, you're hopefully. you're writing it as it's as it's happening. basically. Exactly. And that, yeah. I love that about podcasts. You know, I mean, it's 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 different, you know, like, and it's, it's challenging because you want to have the full picture. You want to tell the story. And I feel like I do have a full picture. I understand it. And I have the framework of how this thing can lay out, but you have the opportunity, you publish something. And then you have a week, you might hear from somebody who would be great to add into Mm -hmm. the podcast. Like, why wouldn't you do that? You know? So it's this kind of always evolving story. It's one of the great things about the internet in general. I I don't want to speak for Bill, Jamie and Denise, but I'm just, I am jealous because I think we probably all have a project like that, that we'd love to do a deep dive into. And, and the podcasts really give us a chance to, to try and tackle stories like that and tell them in a new way. Um, and I, you know, Bill, we, we started a podcast um, not long ago. It was actually in the middle of the pandemic uh, as a news organization. And I've been shocked at the popularity of it. Um, this really is a, a, a form, a format that, that people have taken to people really enjoy listening to podcasts. And I think they really like uh, the locally generated podcast too. Absolutely. And, and I think we, you know, we, we get a lot of comments and um, I, I think we even lately, we've been getting suggestions. Why don't you do a podcast about this or a podcast about that? And that's a really nice reaction to we've seen the the numbers steadily grow i think early on podcasts had, had blown up and then they kind of was like kind of a peak and valley thing and it went into a valley and and over the last few years i mean they've really blown up again and people just kind of love that i love i was i was kind of 
reluctant to get into podcasts a few years ago, you know, as, as an organization, but I love that we're doing that now. And I love that we're doing this radio show and, and, and the audio stuff. And it's just, um, it's really, it's really rewarding. And it's, it's, it's nice to be able to branch out into a couple of different directions. As well. I think with podcasts there, you know, some of the, they, they, and there's a lot of stats that go over uh, in, in the class, but it's something like 50% of people in this country have never even don't even know what a podcast is still, you know? So right. we forget really? that it's still a very new sort of, uh, you know, form of communication that a lot of people that, that number is going to grow obviously. Um, and and so it's it's really still expanding in that way. And you might have a smaller number, like we found on our podcasts, we'll have a smaller number than we would on just a regular post. But of course, it's like it's a big time commitment. You're going to sit down for whatever the I think the average podcast is 22 minutes. It's 22 minutes to an hour of your time to sit and listen to a podcast. But think about the people who do that, how engaged they are with with your product, if they're going to give you that kind of time, I mean, that's just invaluable, that kind of audience. And, and it seems like, it seems like those same people are coming back every week. I mean, the numbers don't fluctuate, you know, greatly. So, you, you know, you've got a core group of people that are, that are always, always listening to it, which is really nice. Yeah. And sometimes you listen to podcasts, you know, when I was going through the program, a lot of other people in the, in the fellowship are recommending podcasts. I was found myself listening to podcasts that were published three years ago. I mean, mm people don't go back and read your newspaper from three years ago, you know, uh, but, but people will sit and spend eight hours listening to your true crime series, you know, Denise, you, as a, as a digital journalist, this is what it's all about, right? It's about engaging with readers and, and finding ways to, to engage with them. And, and uh, you know, there are so many options with video and, and podcasts and, and all different kinds of things. Now we have the live events that happen online. This is just the challenge for us as news organizations, right? Joe, Joe I don't mean to cut you off. And Denise, I don't want to cut you off, but um, you got to understand Denise is in Riverhead. You can only engage so much. <laughs> yeah um i mean I, I i think that the thing that i love and i there are a lot of podcasts that i subscribe to and uh, you know one of the things i love about them is that you don't have to actually sit and listen and dedicate your whole you know what you're doing to it i mean you can it's easy to multitask you know i listen to my podcast like i listen to my audiobooks you know uh while I'm doing other things, whether I'm, uh, you know, pulling weeds in the garden or folding laundry or, you know, taking a walk. Um, whereas with um, the written word, you know, you kind of have to, you know, Focus. engage with it 100% and look at it. And um, so that I find that, uh, you know, but I, but podcasts that are topical, like what you've done here, Grant, um, are, are those are what grab people's attention and hold it. You know, I mean, um, like the, the daily, you know, here's the news today kind of podcast. I know, I don't, I guess, are you, you're still doing that? I'm not sure, but, um, yeah. I would imagine like that has sort of, well, it's got a limited shelf life, first of all, and it's got, I imagine a more limited audience. Cause a lot of those people that are maybe like want a rundown of the news are looking at your newsletters and looking at your Facebook page, looking at your website and, and that kind of thing. There's a lot of, you know, dispersion of that audience. Um, but these topical things like, you know, I mean, uh, what you did with the, with the video and stuff with, um, the, the, uh, unsolved mystery murder mystery a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. I mean, you know, th that was a really spectacular example of, you know, what you can do as a, as a digital journalist. Um, so it's great that you got to do this. I'm curious what, first sparked your interest in uh, Bunky Lamort back in 2017? Like what? Yeah. You know, I, I, back in 2017, we finished the gone investigation and ah. it was like, what are we going to do? And we looked at a few different things that we always kind of heard about and he was one of them. And then what really got me going on it is one of his co-conspirators had fled the country and was living abroad for 29 years and got caught coming back into the country and got arrested. Oh. So I went into the city, I followed, I, I went to each of his court court dates and he ended up, Lamort was sentenced to 50 years in prison, whereas this guy, Jake Moritz, uh, was granted time served, even though he hadn't actually served any time. <laughs> so he, he walked free. And I, I found that so wow. fascinating. And yeah. as I wrote those stories, I kept hearing from people. And then what really set it off for me was Troy Gustafson, our former editor and publisher, found tapes of the one 
interview that Lamort ever did. He had kept those tapes. They were in his garage. He was cleaning out one day and he said, would you have any use for this? I said, yeah, actually I would. <laughs> so I have this. And he only gave one interview. It's about three hours of audio of him and Troy talking. So uh, that I can use in the podcast, it's not the best quality. So I can't over rely on it. It's an old videotape. You can hear like Troy's answering machine messages in the background because he must have recorded over this tape 600 times. But, but that sounds really cool on a podcast. If you're looking at, you know, a, yeah. a historical thing on a podcast and you've got these old sounding sputtering tapes, I think that stuff sounds really neat. Yeah. You know, I made this trailer that. I made this trailer that we're going to release soon. And towards the end of it, I played just this little bit of tape just to get you intrigued to hear him. And it's Troy asking the question, do you regret what you did? You know, and he thinks about it for a second. He just goes, no, I just love that. You know, like the fact that this is a guy who's been gone for 15 years now almost, and we can hear him say that it's just amazing. And yeah, yeah, it's that just made it for that sealed the deal. Like this is the project I'm doing. One of the challenges is to, to have good audio to, to deliver those moments like that. Um, and something like that, finding an old interview, uh, it not only lends the whole project authenticity, it gives you those little moments that you can drop in uh, that, that just sort of cap, capture people's attention. That's very cool. Um, so tell us again, what's the title? And uh, what's it's the a suburban, suburban smuggler. And, uh, you know, you guys got the scoop there through uh, your connections at Southampton. You know, Kathy uh, really uh, gave you the, the scoop. But, uh, but, you know, so I don't have a set timeline, but I definitely want to have it done this this winter, I think, very early next year once we get past the holidays uh drop that for uh drop that on people's iphones we're really looking yeah absolutely looking looking forward forward to it thank you can't wait you know yeah we started behind the headlines partly because there's so much talent in the east end journalism community and i think it just keeps showing itself with uh these various projects and things Uh, i tell people all the time you don't know what you have here this is a very uh it's a very fertile region when it comes to the the community journalism that's being done out here and it's something everybody should should take advantage of and 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 not take for granted that's for sure this is behind the headlines on wliwfm i'm joe shaw my co-host is bill sutton we're from the express news group our panelists today grant parpin from the times review media group james jamie buffalino from the east hampton star and denise civiletti from riverhead local um denise uh and grant you guys both talked about this i think this week there was an incident uh with a winery on the north fork that's in a little bit of trouble but it's got kind of an interesting wrinkle to it denise can you uh kind of describe what we're talking about here i i didn't really do any reporting on this uh it's the location in mattatuck i would uh, pass that off to uh my uh, colleague over at Times Review, because they really dove into this. Uh, there were complaints at, at South gotcha. Old Town Hall, I think, is what started it, right? Yeah, okay, and I think, uh, yeah, and, and well, actually, Newsday had the story uh, first. There was complaints at South Old Town Hall over the years about Harbs. There's kind of always Harbs is the the place that people associate the most with all the traffic on the North Fork this mm-hmm. time of year. And for the listener, listeners on the South Fork who maybe aren't familiar with the North Fork, or I don't know, I don't know who those people are, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the traffic in the in, in the summertime in in the Hamptons is felt actually really only from mid September through the end of October is the the real peak traffic for us, where where it's apple picking, pumpkin picking, the wine harvest, and everybody just sort of converges on the North Fork and. A lot of people would say that's the Harbs traffic, you know, Harbs, they have the Barnyard Adventure. They have a vineyard there. And the Barnyard Adventure is kind of like to borrow a line from my friend, Mike White. It's like great adventure, but for, you know, little kids, Uh, (laughs) it's like a little amusement park that they have going on there. And it's it's actually a great place. I've taken my kids. Mm -hmm. I've tasted the wine there. I've uh, eaten the apple cider donuts as you well, you could tell if you could see my belly and <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a fun place. However, as uh, Newsday reported and we reported this week, um, the vineyard there, what's really interesting is they're not actually, or they weren't actually producing the wine there, which is a violation of their liquor license, all different types of liquor licenses that you can get. And in theirs, I guess the requirement is that they have to make at least 50 gallons 
uh, on, on site on site to have right. the tasting room there, and they were outsourcing that to Pindar Vineyards in Kachag, so mm. uh, or Pakanic. So it's very, um, uh, you know, it's this kind of maybe a little bit of a technicality, and there's neighbors who are upset about the many various uh, operations that are going on there, and this one neighbor in particular made complaints to ag and markets about a lot of things and also to the liquor authority and the liquor authority had charge. And this wasn't really, you know, who's really paying that close attention to liquor authority unless someone loses their liquor license, but there was a violation. Harbs offered to settle that for $10,000. And that was supposed to happen this week. And then at the liquor authority meeting, the liquor authority, I guess, because of the attention that it got in the press said, you know what, there's been a few more complaints that have come to our attention. And now we're opening a new investigation and anticipate even more charges. So we're not going to settle this now. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I'm sure if you look at, um, you know, there's a lot of vineyard owners who are going to hate hearing me say this, but uh, I'm sure you could look at vineyards all around and find little things and, and bars and, you know, where they're not quite following the rules that uh, of the liquor authority. So I think it could open a whole can of worms across the North Fork that could shine a spotlight on other vineyards but the problems with that, carbs go beyond just this, yeah. you know. I, I think this underscores the tension that we've all been living with here or witnessing between, you know, this agritainment, they call a component of the various farms with the corn mazes and pumpkin picking and, and things like that and, and, and concerts. And I mean, yeah. you know, look what was going on at Martha Clara, you know, yeah. some, some summers, you know. And, and, you know, between that and like, okay, we want to keep the open space. We want to keep the farms planted in, you know, crops and and grapes. And, um, and this is the way to do it, you know, but, but by the same token, because it's such a tourist draw, it stresses our roads, it stresses, I mean, people, you know, uh, you talk to people all the time who feel like they cannot, it's a, a stuff or problem that you have, but that they can't go anywhere on the weekend. Like they have to hunker down. And now that they're all it, these it digital, take, takes you, you know, takes you an hour to, to, to drive yeah. two miles sometimes in, in the height of that traffic. It's really, and, and there's no more local shortcuts, right? Because now everybody's got ways and Google yeah. maps and they know all the back roads. And so we local people can't get around the way we used to. So uh, you know, that's a, a, a pretty strong tension in the community, I think. And uh, this, I think, is kind of just a, an example of that playing out and and playing out before the state liquor authority. <laughs> and what makes it a unique tension, too, is it's not just like it's not quite just like locals against tourists, because a lot of the locals want to be supportive of the farms, too. You know, like they want to see yeah. the farm. So there are a lot of locals who get it where they say, you know, Ah, this guy, like, just leave this guy alone, you know, and there's the people who don't want government overreach. They want businesses to be successful. They want small businesses to be successful. But how do you sort of regulate it in a way that it's fair to everyone involved and not just like a total inconvenience? And and I actually feel kind of bad for Harbs in some ways, too, because this traffic in October is just Harbs, Harbs. But I mean, if you drive past Finks, there's traffic, Windy Acres and Calverton, tremendous traffic over Gridlock, the last yeah. few years, uh, Stakey's. You know, it's it's not just a Harbs problem. Harbs is just the one to me who are kind of like doing it best in terms of just maximum. Like you can drink in the tasting room. You can have your kid play here. You can eat here. You can pick here. They have multiple locations. They're just doing it the biggest. And it's this this agro agro entertainment is something New York State's very supportive of, right? I mean, there are programs yeah. at the state level <laughs> to encourage wineries and distilleries to do this kind of I mean, thing. And, and the county, too. I mean, you know, our county legislator, Al Krupski, owns a pumpkin farm. I was just there this weekend in his haunted corn maze on the haunted. He's doing a lot of these things <laughs> mm-hmm. there at his farm. You know, I mean, he's not against this. So it's I'd be interested to know what why they got out of the winemaking business, like just what the financials were yeah, that forced I, you know, them out of that. You know what I mean? Is that that space? Know. No, they built the yeah. space for it. They never really were. I think they were kind of always outsourcing it and they built the space uh, for it. But then when they expanded some of their food offerings, they turned that into kitchen space is my understanding. Uh, so, but they did say to us this week um, that they have, 
after this kind of came to light and they said, oh, we weren't quite aware of that particular we've been. And they now make one of their varieties on site, they said. So they were hoping that by paying the fine, they'd be settled. But they were more. I mean, there was an incident there this weekend where a woman uh, resisted arrest and tried to bite a police officer and grab his oh, razor. Uh, so I don't know if that's maybe what they're referring to with more issues brought to light. Maybe that's someone who was mm-hmm. overserved. Uh, but you know, I, I don't, I don't want to put that on them because you have people hopping from winery to winery. I mean, it doesn't mean that Harbs, this Harbs, so, for all I know, could have told this lady to take a hike and that's why she was getting in her car. So, so not, a, not to point a finger, you know, directly at them, but it, so, it, I mean, and there's a, there's a bunch of these places as, as you mentioned, Grant, I mean, is, is there a difference between, you know, a, a, a local winery and, and there's certainly dozens of them now in the North Fork who, who to try to help, um, you know, make a little extra revenue in the year, takes advantage of the time of year, takes advantage of the tourists coming out. And so they do a little extra. They have a tasting room or they do a corn maze or whatever. And um, is there a difference between that and, you know, and and some of these bigger operations that it's, it's not just one little farm trying to do a little extra, it's turning it into, like you said, an amusement park or, 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 or whatever, is that taking advantage of, of the goodwill of the New York state and, you know, and local, local officials or, or, or are we looking at it as, you know, there's a limited amount of time um, for, for these places to make their money on, on the North Fork. And, and so, you know, so that's what they need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a little bit of taking advantage. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it's just how much is too much. You have to be yeah. a, in anything in business. Like you have to be a good neighbor. You know, you have to be a good sure. actor. You have to be you have to uh, benefit the community around you. But I think you could make the argument that Harbs does. I mean, people coming out to Harbs then go and have dinner at Loveland Kitchen nearby or wherever, uh, you know, it's. Uh, so I think they would say like, hey, we are good numbers. We support this. You know, we pay extra when we have special events for the policing that needs to happen right. there, you know, um, that cuts into their profit. So it's not like they're completely abusing things, but yeah, maybe taking advantage of things a little bit. But I think we just we have to remember with these farms and I mean, what's the alternative? Like, do you really like we need people to come out here? You know, we need that. that that's the economy out here. And those are the jobs out here, too. I don't see anybody else stepping up and building an Apple headquarters in uh, in South Hold, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, like we're not getting those jobs. So, uh, you know, I, I, I have friends who are, are in that industry and have, you know, nice, great jobs. Uh, so there it's everybody's got to work together. And that that's impossible to do with anything, you know. Success bring, like brings its own local, challenges. We yeah. need to kind of just sort of grin and bear it, I think, you know, and, and work around it as residents here because yeah. it is such, I mean, it's important. I mean, one thing I think that needs to be looked at and dealt with is when traffic jams uh, become a threat to people's lives when, you know, like first responders can't get through with ambulances and things like that. I mean, we've had incidents like that on Sound Avenue in, in Riverhead and on the North Fork before you, it becomes a four lane highway where it's just a parking lot and ambulances have been stuck. I mean, yeah. they've complained about that. So, yeah, we've had horrific you know. crashes with people leaving wineries and that sort yeah. of thing, you know, boating incidents where people are drinking. I mean, alcohol has mm-hmm. been a, a definitely the prevalence of alcohol on the North Fork. It's a big reason why people come up and that's there's 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 some evil in that, you know, there's some, some really bad things that have happened. Grant, was the timing of this crackdown um, significant in any way? It seems like a bad time of year for a winery to be dealing with uh, the authorities yeah. cracking down on. Them. I think it's quietly been ongoing for uh, several months. So I think it's just kind of coincidental that now it's come to this time where they're trying to settle it. And, uh, and it's just when they were before the SLA uh, board. So, you know, but yeah, it's obviously not a great time for them to get negative press, but I'll tell you what, I'm not anticipating people not going to pick their pumpkins and, uh, <laughs> and they're, they're going to be, they'll, they'll do some business this weekend. I'm sure. Yeah. It's still business as usual there just to, just to be clear. Yeah. Right. Yes. And then they, they haven't lost their liquor license. Like nothing like that's happening. I drove by the other day and people are sitting, you know, I saw, I saw a fire chief pull up in his car there and bring his family out with his fire chief car, you know, from one of the local fire departments. Like that's the next big story, right? Like, 
do, do you see, I see, I go to city field and I see East end uh, fire trucks there, you know, like why are these cheaps driving these cars to wineries? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's taxpayer abuse at its finest. Let's go. Where's that story? Let's get that on the, uh, on the agenda to, to report on coming up. Uh, it's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. With us today, Grant Parpin, Jamie Buffalino, and Denise Civiletti. Jamie, uh, before we go, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about uh, the Shinnecock Indian Nation. They took a vote this week uh, endorsing the sale of recreational marijuana on uh, tribal territory. Uh, this is not going to take immediate effect it basically was just an endorsement of the idea now the 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 nation's leaders have to go back and come up with an ordinance and they'll have to come up with a permitting process and all that kind of stuff but they did support uh with a with a popular vote both selling uh in general and also offering individual licenses uh to members of the nation to sell this is coming sort of in the context of a lot of the local villages and towns having to make a decision about whether they're going to allow marijuana sales. And a lot of them are saying, no, sort of changes the complexion of, of this, this conversation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this vote is the um, reservation. They follow the same uh, trajectory as the state. So they previously had approved um uh, medical marijuana, and now they're approving recreational marijuana. And, um, you know, the surrounding towns have yet, most of them have yet to decide. And one of the key arguments against allowing a sales has, has been that people don't know what happens to people who drive while high, you know, essentially, because there isn't an effective um, technology for police to figure out how high somebody is the way there is for DUI. But now, if it's already in our backyard, that's a hard argument to make, you know, and it, the fact is that there have always been people who have had um, marijuana here uh, in illicit ways they've gotten it and they could have been driving high and we never knew about it. Um, but now that argument becomes even harder to make because, you know, if it's going to be in Southampton one way or another, you know, why not make money from the sales? Um, and, you know, the fact is there's only two more months or three more months left before everyone has to decide. And I feel like a discussion has to be more robust than it, it feels like it's been in all the different uh, municipalities. I was kind of surprised at the default sort of in each of the villages and towns being to not allow. And I, maybe some of that has to do with I think you have to opt in to to have the option of, of excluding it. I think you might be able to change your mind later. Do I have that right, Bill? That the, the, no, do, I think it's the other way, right? You have to, uh, if you opt out, <clears throat> then you can change your mind and opt back in. Yeah. Oh, okay. the, the, the default is that it will it'll be allowed. If there's, no, if there's no legislation passed opting out, then, you know, then it's just allowed automatically. And then I think at that point, it becomes really difficult to... Uh, to opt out after the fact. There is also a referendum part of it, which is that if your uh, municipality votes against it, the people and the people can override it with a referendum. But, you know, so that's a long process that deserves, I've always felt that, you know, there should be more of a discussion about this so that people have a chance to like really hear what both sides and have their voices heard. You know, I, I think the villages that have, have held public hearings on it, oddly, you, you don't see a lot of people speaking up. You see a few people uh, here and there. Southampton Village um, just opted out. I think West Hampton Beach, if they haven't opted out already, they're, 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 they're poised to. But, you know, you have um, public hearings and you have three or four people speak up. So I don't know that it's as big an issue to the public as it is to us journalists who, you know, keep. Um, it kind of was pushing. a riverhead. Yeah, I, it, it was, was a riverhead. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, you know, they went to a, a hearing on an opt out, a local law to opt out. And uh, but before they did that, they had they did a survey and they got a pretty robust response as these online surveys go. And people were overwhelmingly against opting out or in favor of making the sale uh, legal in the town. And in, even uh, 
the marijuana cafes uh, got support. Uh, and then, you know, they had they had a hearing on the opt-out and people participated in that more than your typical uh, hearings. Huh. And uh, and then two members of the board uh, voted to opt out, to adopt that law, but it that measure failed um, three to two. So yeah. they were proactive about it. Out. Yeah. They were proactive. Well, I thought they did a good job on it. You know, I mean, Southhold, they don't, they haven't even, they were, we have till the end of the year is what they said. We'll reach out to them about it. They, it came up in a work session. And I, I, even in Riverhead, they said, you don't really have till the end of the year. I don't know. I've tried researching this. Like, did you have to have it done by August so that there could be a referendum? So I've seen oh, that's the deputy order. town attorney in Riverhead. Yeah, um, I, 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 I went over that with her after we got the, um, Michael Wright's uh, report on what Fred Thiel was saying about right. uh, that you can adopt it at any point until, you know, I, I think that maybe there's a loophole for that. But I think that clearly that wasn't what uh, the governor was aiming for. He was yeah. aiming to put the pressure on people to I'll, get it done this year. Um, I'll tell so. you what, when Southold's going to bring it up first, first uh, meeting after the election. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think a lot of a lot of places. Sure. I also think that it's important to point out, you know, we talk about how this is going to make marijuana available for purchase uh, more more readily on the East End. This is also going to be a huge economic uh development project for for the nation they they have an organization called little beach harvest uh that's run by uh shanae bullock uh with the shinnecock nation and they've done a really nice job of setting up a partnership for the the development of growing marijuana and and selling it both uh for medical use and uh for recreational use adult only recreational use um, and they've sort of set up a vertical vertical integration uh, in that market so that when it's, you know, they have been prepared for this for a while, I think. And I think we're starting to see the wheels turn now where it's it's going to go. Um, and when it goes, it's going to be a huge uh, economic generator for the tribe. And I think that's something that, that uh, a lot of these projects are going to be for the Shinnecock Nation moving forward. Absolutely. You know, I went to the... Uh, Cannabis Expo that was held in East Hampton recently, and uh, uh, the tribe made a presentation, and they are partnered with some big names in the industry, and they they said that they were hoping to use more local people to develop their um, retail side, but they really wanted the expertise that comes with the technology and also creating more of a vertical business and they have aspirations beyond just locally. Um, mm -hmm. So I was, I was pretty impressed with how much work uh, they had put into developing. This. It's interesting too, because to, to cultivate marijuana, you really need to build large facilities to do it. It's not really a crop that you grow in the field so much. Uh, and the, the nation has some territory that uh, they'll have the opportunity to do that. And they, don't have to follow town codes or anything. So uh, they have an ability to, to maybe adapt to that some more. So, well, that's it. We're out of time for another week of Behind the Headlines. Uh, another great conversation. Uh, thank you to our guests, Grant Parpin, Denise Civiletti, and uh, Jamie Buffalino. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Bill, Bill Sutton, my co-host, thank you as always. Absolutely. Great show, guys. Thanks so much. And we'll be back next week uh, with Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. Thanks for listening.